Our text this morning is the first 30 chap first 30 verses of Genesis. No, it won't be that much of an overview. 30 verses of Genesis 29. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. It is completely sufficient. And it is completely authoritative. Genesis 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked, and he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is, is it not time for the livestock to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then... We water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Then Jake, Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. 
But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you this morning that you have indeed blessed us with your word. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would teach us from it, that you would show us your power your providence, and your provision. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know what this time of year is. It's the time when Christmas is here, and that is the time when we are now supposed to pay attention to God. This is the time when throughout the world we are supposed to think about acting in accordance with God's law, treating each other according to the second great commandment, loving our neighbor as ourselves, thinking about all of the good deeds we can do and the religious things we can think about at least until January when life will get back to normal. Now we can think about that and laugh a bit and and be concerned for others around us, but the question I think that comes to us is, do you live life that way? I don't mean about Christmas. I mean, do you live life thinking that there are only certain times when God is paying attention? Only certain times when we need to be concerned about what God thinks. And the rest of the time we kind of operate as free agents. God checks in with us, almost like a parent does when mom and dad go out for dinner and leave the kids alone at home. They call every 45 minutes or hour just to make sure the house is still standing. Well, you see, everything that happens in our lives is a part of God's providence. And God's providence has a purpose, and Jacob is going to learn that here in Genesis 29. This morning we will look at the providence of God and how it affects Jacob and how it affects us. I'd like us to see three things about God's providence this morning. First, we will see a kind providence that God gives to Jacob. Then we will see a hard providence that God gives to Jacob. But in both, we will see a divine providence that God has prepared for not only Jacob, but for you and me. Let's begin then by looking at the kind providence that God gives 
to Jacob. Jacob has just met with the Lord at Bethel. And God is still with him. But in a sense, this providence is unseen and unappreciated by Jacob. Now, Jacob's whole demeanor and outlook on life has been changed by the interview, as it were, with God in Bethel. He was discouraged and lonely, but God had met him and lifted him up. And told him he would be with him. He would protect him. And now Jacob is filled with joy. There's actually a very interesting Hebrew idiom at the beginning of this chapter. The English translation, which is, is proper, just says that Jacob went on his journey. But it's more than that. The only place in all the Bible it is used, it says that Jacob lifted up his feet. You can picture this. There's a spring in his step. We might even say if he weren't a serious 70-year-old patriarch that he went skipping through the desert for joy. He is encouraged and ready to move on. Now, I want you to notice here that this is perhaps one of the problems with Jacob, that a rough edge that needs to be smoothed out, and perhaps you suffer from it as well. You see, Jacob is a victim of his circumstances and disprovidence. When life is hard, he... He doubts God and is miserable. And when life seems to be good, then he's happy. But you see, really what is happening here is God is with him all the time. And with a spring in his step, he comes to the land of the east. It's been a long journey, probably as much as a month, to get from Bethel to where he is now. Do not let the the shortness of the text deceive you. It's a month's worth of walking. It's been a long time. And we might even say at this point as he walks in, what good luck he has. I mean, think about it. He just happens to come to a field filled with sheep. He just happens to come to a field filled with sheep tended by people who just happen to know Laban, his uncle. And then as this happens, it just so happens that Rachel the daughter of Laban, the eligible young lady who's gorgeous, just happens to walk up to the man who came here to find a wife. What incredible luck Jacob has. Well, you know that that's a joke. Because there is no such thing as luck. Jacob didn't hit the lottery here. Jacob is being watched over and protected by the living God. In the very steps that he takes, the streets that he turns on, the places that he rests, the people that he talks to, each and every one of these events is a part of the grand design, plan, and decree of the living God. Do you think about your life that way? Did you think about that this morning when you took the route that you perhaps always take to church? Did you think about it yesterday when you went to this place and not to that place? Or this person called? Or that person? You see, each and every one of these things is under the providence of God and His purpose for us. What a kind providence God has given here to Jacob. God is at work going before Jacob. 
And so Jacob comes here to this well. And you can just imagine. You all have them in your families, don't you? The famous stories. You know, as the conversation goes with a neighbor or someone who is new to your family, there comes a point in the conversation where everyone nods their head and says, you know, mom's going to tell about the time. Oh, dad's going to give his version of. That happened to Jacob. Can you imagine how many times he had to listen to the story of how Rebecca came to be Isaac's wife? Can you imagine how many times? Work hard, son. Work hard and the Lord will bless you and go before you and maybe someday you'll have a servant and he can go off to a well and you'll meet your wife. Son, now the Lord is preparing a wife for you. Maybe somewhere there's a well for you where you will come up and a beautiful young lady will set her eyes upon you just like I did to your father. The first time I saw him, when I came and got off the camel, and I was just smitten. Hundreds of times they'd hear this story. Now, what has become kind of a roll-your-eyes, mom, kind of story, now you can imagine his heart is beating, his throat is parched and scratched, his tongue weighs a 100 pounds, he sees he's at a well. Is it the same well? And look, it's Rachel. Now, you... I can't do sanctify goo-goo eyes in the text. But that's what's happening here. That's what's happening. You see, all of his emotions are, are in the play here. But see, you have to know that God is the one bringing this about. This isn't just dumb luck. This isn't just Jacob deserving to find a wife. This is God arranging another marriage. God is going before him. But I want you to notice something that Jacob still again needs those rough edges smoothed out. You can imagine he's all excited. Look, God is doing this again for me. For me, he's bringing me a wife. And there's one main difference in this story and in Genesis 24. There's no prayer. You see that? The servant prayed and thanked the Lord and said, go before me. Jacob just says, well, looky here. And he's ready to go. And it's love at first sight. And so Jacob, the confident young man, well, not quite so young. Now he attempts to position himself. Young men and not so young men, you know how this works, right? He attempts to be suave. He walks up to what are probably shepherd boys and he says, well, um, my brothers, where are you from? I'm from out of town. And they answer him in pretty surly tones. Haran, there's almost an implied, what of it? Who are you? And then he tries to play the I'm connected card. Well, do you know Laban? And they say, yeah, we know him. He's well. Okay. They're just not impressed with his answers. But you see, he also is blessed here by God in that the shepherd boys who really don't want to have the time with him, they they pawn him off on Rachel who he wants to talk to anyway. They say, don't ask us about Laban. Ask her. That's his daughter. 
Go bother her. Leave us alone. We're resting. And he thinks, oh, this is my opportunity. And then he falls into the bane of every young suitor everywhere. It's called the younger brother syndrome. Rachel is coming and you can imagine he wants to speak to her and show her how connected and suave and manly he is. And a couple of little brothers here, so to speak, are hanging around. And he looks at him and he says, shouldn't you go water the flocks? Come on, skedaddle. And they say, it's not time to water the flocks. Come on, go, go open up the well. We can't open up the well. We never open up the well until everyone is here and everyone's not here. So we're staying put. All right. So he tries something else. He goes into action. He says, I'll take care of this problem. And he rolls the big, large stone off the well, doing the single-handed task of impressing the fair young damsel and showing up the young shepherd boys. I don't need any help. Now, There's probably a custom involved here that the reason they're just waiting at the well is everyone comes to the well at one time and then they roll the stone off the well and then the reason they're here ahead of time sitting in the hot sun is it's probably first come, first serve. Kind of like the DMV. And so what does Jacob do with the custom of the land? He completely ignores it. He rolls off the well and he says, pardon me, excuse me, and he cuts Rachel in line. This will be important later. He doesn't really care about the custom of the land. But he's overcome with emotion. He does something that I'm sure you all do when you see your cousin. You walk up to her and you kiss her and you cry. Right, men? He is completely struck by emotion. This is love at first sight. This is the very first love story in the Bible. Now, I don't mean to say that Adam did not love Eve or that Abraham did not love Sarah, but this is the first almost biblical soap opera. Jacob is completely smitten with Rachel. It's a kind providence that God has given to him. But it's followed on by a hard providence because, you see, God does not exist merely to give us all of our needs. There's a hard providence here we see as Jacob begins to interact with Laban. So Rachel is excited. She has surely heard the story too about the stranger who came and took her aunt off to the land of camels and gold and silver and jewels. As she runs furiously to Laban. And you can almost imagine... Do you remember those old cartoons where someone would see something that was valuable and big, huge dollar signs would shoot out of their eyeballs? That's what happens to Laban. He thinks the last time somebody came here, he dropped a boatload of gold on us. Where is he? And he takes off like a shot, trying to find Jacob. He's expecting to see camels and gold and silver and spices and all sorts of things, and he sees Jacob in the torn jeans and the ripped T-shirt with dirt on his face and one sorry-looking bag. And he says, who are you? He says, I'm your relative. I'm here to be with you. This arrival is a little bit different than when the servant of Abraham came. 
Now, first, Jacob is penniless, has nothing to his name. And secondly, unlike the servant who could not wait to drop the cash and leave, Jacob plops down on the couch. So what do we got to eat around here? What do we do around here? What's up for next week? And you could just imagine Laban, you could see him getting a bit redder every minute. And he quizzes Jacob to find out who he is. And Jacob tells him, the text says, all things. But I don't think Jacob tells him every single thing about his life. He probably leaves out details like the time he deceived his brother. The time he tricked his dad. But he probably tells him that this is who I am. This is my family. He probably describes Rebecca in some detail that Laban would, would recognize. And he says, I'm out here to find a wife. And you see, the text here off the written page almost looks like Laban is excited that he is relatives with Jacob. Surely you are my bone and my flesh. But I think we ought to read this with a little bit more of a sigh in it. Yeah, okay. I guess you're related to me. I guess you can have the spare room in the back. And Jacob just hangs around for a month. Just hangs around. Does a little bit of work on the side here. And Laban is starting to think. The wheels are starting to turn. He knows why Jacob has come to find a wife. He only has to be in Jacob's presence with Rachel about 30 seconds to see what's going on there. And he exploits the situation. He knows the desperation, he knows the need, and he exploits it. Does that sound familiar? Like supper time with Esau? Jacob's met his match here in Laban. It's a part of the family business. And so the tables wind up getting turned on Jacob. And Laban begins with this seemingly innocent question. Now, you are my kinsman. Should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me your wages. And again, we can look at this and perhaps we read into it and we say, well, these are Bible people and they always have the best motives because Bible people are holy people. And so what he's, he's trying to help a young man out. But what I want you to do here is scan your eye down that paragraph and see how many times the word serve is used. He wants to make a nephew... A hired hand. He wants control over him. He wants to be in charge of the wages. He wants to play the game here. And so he looks here and tries to maneuver Jacob into his trap. He's got the two girls here. He's, quite frankly, in this day and age, got to get rid of. And here's at least the potential suitor and we see here also that he has a problem with getting rid of his daughters the custom is that the older one is married first and let's just say that the older one has a wonderful personality she's not exactly going to strike people with her looks now we will learn later that she's a fine woman and that god blesses her but she's not about to excite the young Jacob. She has eyes, the text says, that are weak. And this either means that 
her face is just not exactly radiant, or it might mean the opposite. It might mean the only thing that's good about her is her eyes. And Rachel, well, she is beautiful, a figure. She's a knockout. So it's obvious which of the sisters Jacob is going to go for. And he doesn't have a buddy here to pawn off on the friend. There will be no Fred for Ethel. But Laban has a plan. And he plays the game as well or better than Jacob ever does. He plays it by inches. You'll notice the text. Every time that Laban speaks, he doesn't use Rachel's name. Do you see it? He says, it is better that I give her to you than that I give her to another. And later when Jacob says, give me my wife, he says, nothing. The name is not used. He's got a loophole, a footnote in the contract. He's hoping the fine eight-point font will not be seen. Do you know anyone else in this story who plays life like that? Jacob is experiencing a hard providence of God. He's acting not at all unlike Jacob did. That is, Laban is. And so, after seven years of service that seemed like but a few days to Rachel. Now, I know this may be hard for some of you who are engaged or thinking about being engaged or thinking about thinking about being engaged, and you think, no way, two months is forever. But seven years, that was the love that Jacob had for Rachel. And you could just imagine he would work hard, she might come, bring him a cup of cool water. Someday we'll have our own water. Yes, we will, sweetheart. Okay. He would be hungry. She'd bring him a mutton sandwich. Someday we'll eat mutton sandwiches together. Yes, we will, sweetheart. And this goes on for seven years, and they're so happy, and the wedding comes, and it's a big party. And you have to understand, weddings in this time are very different than in our time. This doesn't happen in our day, because the very first thing that happens, maybe because of this text, is the father takes the veil off the bride, and the groom looks and goes, yeah, that's her. But see, in this day and age, quite frankly, a wedding was a male affair. These are all men partying, drinking, eating, feasting. And after everyone has eaten their full and drunk perhaps a bit too much at this point, at the conclusion of the party, then the bride is brought in to the groom. Now, I want you to imagine, those of you who are skeptical, that you're in the desert without any electric lights. And the bride is dressed from head to toe with a veil. And there's not a lot of talking going on. And the wrong woman is delivered. And so Jacob wakes up and he says, Ay, ay, ay! Where's Rachel? It's Leah! Now you can imagine that doesn't exactly make Leah feel very good. But then again, she doesn't really deserve to feel very good because she's in on the, the joke, so to speak, or she's in on the trick. And this tells us how dysfunctional Laban's family is. How does Leah do this? How on earth do they keep Rachel quiet? Do they tie her up and gag her in some other tent? Because she certainly isn't going to do this. Where is Leah's mother that she allows Laban to pull this kind of a fast one? 
And what kind of a father cares more about getting seven years of work and getting rid of his daughter than he does about her happiness? You see, this is a hard providence, but it's a hard providence that is so because of sin. Because of Jacob's sin. Because of Laban's sin. Because of Leah's sin. The world is a hard place because of sin. But I want you to notice how God is present here. You see, unlike Esau, whose response would have been, get me a big axe and show me Laban's forehead. Jacob just kind of takes it in stride. He realizes what has happened, and he realizes that if he's patient and he perseveres, he'll eventually get what he wants. I think he's trying to learn his lesson here. That he should have been a bit more circumspect, a bit more careful, a bit more focused on the Lord. Well, you see, God has given Jacob good and he's given Jacob bad. But in both of those, these things, there is a divine providence at work. Because you see, what is happening here is the Lord God is disciplining his child, Jacob. I'll tell you something that you won't like. Every one of you that believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and are being sanctified by God's grace to be more like Jesus, every single one of you probably needs a Laban in your life. Someone to make you appreciative of the Lord. Someone to teach you patience. Someone to remind you why it's important to treat others like you'd like to be treated. God knew Jacob needed Laban. He knew Jacob was not ready to be the patriarch. He was not ready to be Israel at this time. And God is going to spend 20 years sanding down the rough Jacob into the smooth Israel. God is at work here. He has a plan to shape Jacob. And you see, this is true of each of us and our families. You see, it is a parenting lesson God will not spare His children from all of the consequences of sin all the time. Because He knows that makes us ungrateful, miserable brats of children. Do you remember that famous book from C.S. Lewis, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Do you remember Eustace at the beginning of that book? A guy you wouldn't have been wanted to be around for five minutes? That's what happens when parents spare their children from all of the consequences of their actions. Now, I'm not telling you to let your kids go adrift. But I am saying that they and you need to often experience the pain that comes with the consequences of sin. It teaches us that sin is wrong and is bad. It is a method that the Lord uses. It's like touching the hot stove. And that's what he's doing here with Jacob. Jacob is learning some very specific and ironic lessons. Think about it. He's learning by serving Laban for year upon year upon year. And doing that before he will be served. By Esau. Do you remember that the prophecy was that the older would serve the younger? Well, before that happens, 
The younger's going to have to do some serving. The one who was so ready to skip over the rights of the firstborn will now learn exactly how painful it is to try and do that. Skipping over the right of the firstborn Leah. And perhaps most appropriately, he is going to be deceived even as he deceived. There's irony here. I'm not sure Jacob's even aware of it. But when he shouts this humorous, it's Leah, I don't understand. What are you doing? What have you done to me? Why have you deceived me? He uses the exact same word that Esau uses to describe his conduct. What goes around comes around. Jacob is learning at his own pain that you don't treat people like you would not want to be treated. This is a basic lesson of the New Testament that all of us from the youngest to the oldest need to learn. We are to treat others with respect and honor because we would desire the same. We are all made in God's image. And Jacob will learn a lesson that will never go away from him. Do you see what he has now? He has two wives. And he's wishing he only had one ear. Because in one ear, he has constantly one wife saying, you don't love me as much as you love her. Look at all these children I'm giving you. Why don't you love me as much as you love her? And then in the other ear, constantly, why is she always going on and on about the kids? Why don't you show me more attention? Why doesn't God give me more kids? We're going to see this play out. Jacob is going to pay for this. And it's an irony here that his own sin comes home to roost with him. There's a wonderful modern example of this that I was reminded of when reading one of my professors on this passage, John Currid. Some of you remember the Nixon tapes. Do you remember why there are Nixon tapes that sunk his presidency? Because at the very beginning of his presidency, he decided he would tape all of his conversations so that posterity would see what a great president he was. And the tapes come back to haunt him. This is a providence that God has designed for Jacob, for Rachel, for Leah, and for their families. There is a plan for Jacob here, but I also want you to understand in conclusion that there is a plan for the world. It's not fair that he has Leah. Why does God let this happen? Jacob worked for seven years. God, why are you doing this to me, we cry. And God answers Jacob's cry and our similar cry with three verses. Genesis 35, 23. The sons of Leah. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. Simeon, Levi, Judah. Matthew 2, verse 6. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Revelation 5, 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
You see, but for this. No. This is done because the Lord God has a plan for all of His people. Jesus Christ was not born from Judah, born from Leah, because God worked out the providence of these bad events. No, God had a plan from the beginning, and He uses the weak and the lowly. But for this, Jesus Christ is not born. Have that thought in your mind the next time a hard providence comes upon you. That it may not just be miserable luck. That it's God at work doing His good will for the good of His people in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.